Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Welcome back. I hope that you guys enjoyed the last episode on the neuroscience of pheromones. I am curious what you think. Are they present in humans? Do we have the systems and mechanisms to sense them? And are those pheromone perfumes worth it? Let me know. So if you're on Instagram, you know that I took a brief hiatus last week to spend some time with my family during a somewhat difficult time for us. So, But now I'm back. With regards to the schedule for the next few weeks, I will release an episode this week, uh, and I'm sure you probably already know this, but I release on Thursday morning at 5 a.m., and then I actually have to give a lab meeting at work for the two weeks after that, so you might only get one episode over those two weeks. So episode this week, maybe episode week after that, maybe episode week after that. I'm not sure yet. Lab meetings are a lot of work, unfortunately, but they are pretty fun to give. Uh, One of my meetings is actually a journal club, so I'll be presenting a cool paper that's relevant to my work. And if you're interested in getting a small version of that, let me know. It'll probably just be me chatting about some sensory motor integration shenanigans. You can all feel what it's like to be part of an academic lab. But with the scheduling out of the way, let's talk about the neuroscience of mad cow disease. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I thought two things were going to be much bigger problems than they actually are in my life right now. Those two things are quicksand and mad cow disease. I distinctly remember sitting in my elementary school cafeteria eating a very stale hamburger, and I'm honestly not sure how that got clear to be fed to elementary school children. And someone sat next to me and told me that if I got unlucky enough and that meat came from a mad cow... I would go mad myself. Thankfully, I am here today in complete control of my capacities, so I'm starting to think that maybe it's not as big an issue as I originally thought when I was a kid. Let's find out together. So, mad cow disease, or bovine spongiform encephalopathy, I hate this word, I can never say it, encephalopathy, or BSE, as I will be referring to it from now on, is an incurable and fatal neurodegenerative disease in cattle. Infected cattle will start to show symptoms four or five years after they're infected, and those consist of abnormal behavior, trouble walking, and significant weight loss. Death occurs a couple of weeks after symptoms start showing with no cure. The cause of infections is thought to be meat and bone meals, which if you're a vegetarian or vegan or uncomfortable with the more sordid practices of the farming industry, just go ahead and skip like 25 seconds. Meat and bone meal is made up of the remains of cattle or sheep, and it is sometimes fed to young calves of dairy cows as a low-cost protein source. So yes, cattle are fed to cattle. Because of BSE, this practice is largely no longer allowed, It is, however, sometimes used as a low-cost animal protein in dog food. Just a little fun fact for you. So if a cow with BSE dies and it's made into meat and bone meal for another cow, there is a risk of the second cow contracting BSE. How does this occur? A fun little thing called a prion, literally meaning infectious protein. 
And when I say that this thing is the stuff of science fiction horror movies, I mean it. A prion is a type of protein that can trigger normal proteins in the brain to fold abnormally and be non-functional. So that's the first configuration that prions come in, the pathogenic form, the one that can be spread from animal to animal or animal to human. The second form is a prion protein that is found all over the surface of the cells in our bodies. It's encoded by the PRNP gene, located on chromosome 20 in humans, and expressed in most cell types in mammals. This protein is involved in a bunch of different things, including maintaining homeostasis in our neurons, helping uh, neurons to signal one another, helping cells to stick to one another, and protecting against stress. So that's the good kind. Now, what happens when the bad kind of prion comes into the body? Well, it weaponizes the normal cellular prions. The bad prion runs rampant throughout the brain, recruiting the cellular prions that then misfold into abnormal configurations and group together in large clumps. Now, this can actually lead to brain damage because these aggregates kill the neurons that they occupy. This process also results in a somewhat spongy texture to the brain because it's now full of small holes with all those dead neurons. The way that this works is that the good prions are recruited by literally being added to the end of the bad one. And once the aggregate becomes too large, it splits up into smaller groups, which then continue to spread throughout the brain until everything is infected. Nightmarish, right? But it gets worse. How do you kill a prion? It needs to be denatured or, like, destroyed to the point where it can no longer cause other proteins to misfold, aka it needs to be exposed to high heat, uh, something like 900 degrees Fahrenheit or above, for several hours. And that's way above the temperature that we cook at. You can also bathe them in acid or bleach, but even prion-infected tissue that's been treated with chemicals or frozen can retain infectivity for years. Mmm, tasty. (laughs) There are also several known human neurodegenerative diseases that are caused by prions. Mad cow disease in humans is called variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and it's thought to be caused by eating beef products contaminated with central nervous system tissue, such as brain or spinal cord, from diseased cows. This disorder really came to light after an outbreak of BSE in the United Kingdom in the 1980s and 1990s. At the time of the outbreak, cattle farming was one of the largest sectors, if not the largest sector, of British agriculture, and feeding meat and bone meal was a common practice to increase milk supply. In the 1990s, a number of young people began to develop a neurological disorder and 177 would go on to contract and unfortunately pass away from the disease. Over 4 million head of cattle were slaughtered in an attempt to minimize the spread, and British beef was banned from a lot of countries for the decades following. At the time, the British government was actually criticized quite heavily for their response to the epidemic. The first individual, uh, 19-year-old Stephen Churchill, died from the disease in May of 1995. And in September 1995, the government actually released a statement saying that there was insufficient evidence connecting BSE and variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. And it was not until March 1996, almost a year later, that they finally stated that it was the definitive cause. Well, history lesson there. 
but let's get back to the disease. So variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is generally characterized by rapidly developing neurological failure. Symptoms include loss of intellect and memory, changes in personality, slurred speech, visual problems, and abnormal movements, to name a few. It's quite similar to other degenerative disease, such as Alzheimer's, but the degeneration occurs much, much faster. There are a number of ways to diagnose, including looking at an MRI, where high signals in specific parts of the brain, specifically in the posterior thalamus, are markers of the disease. This is actually called a hockey stick sign because the hyperintense signal looks kind of like the end of a hockey stick in the brain. Now, fascinatingly enough, mad cows are not the only way that you can contract a prion-based disease. Sometimes people develop Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease sporadically, which is actually the most common type of prion-based diseases. We don't know exactly how it arises, but it's likely that a normal prion protein randomly changes into a faulty, bad prion and causes the same chain of events we discussed earlier. Or it's possible that a normal gene spontaneously changes into a faulty gene that then encodes bad prions. But we truly, simply don't know what's happening. While the variant mad cow form of this disease affects young individuals with a median age of death of 28, the sporadic form affects adults aged 45 to 75, with symptoms commonly developing between the ages of 60 and 65. There's also an inherited form of CJD, the Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease CJD, where the bad prion protein gene is inherited from a parent. And then there's also a version called uh, iatrogenic CJD, where CJD is spread from someone to someone else through medical or surgical treatment. Now, the latter sounds pretty scary. And it can occur if instruments used during brain surgery aren't properly cleaned between surgeries, or in this bizarrely specific case, growth hormone treatments. So way back when, again in the 1980s, <laughs> pre-1980s, growth hormones were extracted from the pituitary glands or the brain stems of deceased individuals in order to be given to patients who needed them. In 2020, there was actually one death from this kind of CJD caused by receiving growth hormone before 1985 from a diseased individual. But increased awareness of the risks makes this kind of CJD exceedingly rare. Also, synthetic growth hormones have been used since 1985. So, as I've said before, this disease is unfortunately incurable and therefore fatal. So, the majority of treatment options focus on alleviating pain and making the patient as comfortable as possible. Antidepressants and pain medicines are often prescribed. But this is a very active area of research, and scientists and health practitioners are working to identify compounds for treatment or even a cure. Just this month, like literally, I found a paper from April 2022, I think it was like three or four days ago, uh, a large group over at the University College London published their finding on the evaluation of a prion protein monoclonal antibody therapy for CJD in humans. Let's break that down. So antibodies are the things that our bodies produce after we've been sick to recognize and target infectious particles. 
Monoclonal means that they are made from one type of immune cell and will bind very specifically to one target site. There's also polyclonal antibodies that are made using several immune cells and may bind to a number of slightly different target sites. There's pros and cons to using each one that I won't get into at the moment. Regardless, this group generated a bunch of these monoclonal antibodies to target the prion protein, these like harmful aggregates, and offered them as a treatment to a cohort of six patients with a diagnosis of probable CJD who were not in the terminal stages of the disease quite yet. Their findings are somewhat complicated to interpret. They were able to deliver the drug to the brain and observe no adverse effects, even at the highest drug concentration, which is great. That's amazing news. But disease progression was not halted or reversed or even slowed in any of their patients. So what does that mean? While there are no observable effects, it does produce some hope that this antibody can be safely administered at the right concentrations and suggests that it might help clear some of the disease prion protein from the brain. It's really, really hard to interpret because there's such a small number of patients, but overall, these results are promising. So now that I've freaked you out about this horrible, horrible disease, I want to tell you how rare it is. There are only about one case per one million people per year. It is exceedingly rare. The statistics say that you are not going to get it. But it is sobering to be reminded that there are some science fiction nightmare things in our world. Diseases that are incurable, that literally weaponize our own cells against us. There's no way to prevent it, especially the sporadic kind. But our food and healthcare systems have already initiated many, many measures to ensure that we don't get the variant CJD or iatrogenic CJD. In fact, I learned that in order to ensure the safety of the blood supply in the United States, anybody who could possibly have been exposed to CJD isn't allowed to donate, including people with biological relatives who have CJD, who have received any sort of brain graft, anybody who has spent three or more months in the UK from 1980 to 1996, spent five years or more in France or Ireland between 1980 and 2001, or anyone who has ever received a blood transfusion in the UK, France, or Ireland since 1980. So I wouldn't worry about that. So it turns out that mad cow disease isn't as big a problem as I thought it was, but this research project was pretty terrifying. Long story short, I don't think studying prions is in my future. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of mad cow disease. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and you learned something new. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and your loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.